Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. The central problem of the Civil War is simply stated. It's a problem of leadership. Uh, Generals such as Essex and Manchester were constantly applying the bricks. They were avoiding battle, failing to take the offensive, even when they had a crushing superiority, as was the case at Newbury, where they snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. This, uh, of course, frittered away the uh, the success at Marsden more to some extent, and the, the Royalists drew a new... Uh, encouragement from a number of successes which they they succeeded in gaining. For example, in Scotland, where the Marquis of Montrose uh, stirred up a revolt of the Highland clans on behalf of Charles, and he proved to be quite a formidable, quite a skillful leader of guerrilla war. At one stage, they even succeeded in capturing, capturing Glasgow, and they were a thorn in the sides of the Covenanters and of the Parliament for several years. So this situation clearly stoked up a move of tremendous discontent, particularly in the ranks of the army, where now for the first time we can say that the level of influence was growing rapidly. Uh, And it found an echo even in the ranks of the officers uh, who in Parliament expressed their discontent with the situation. And it was quite intolerable. And therefore, the only possible solution, this was clear to everybody, clear above all to Cromwell, that uh, the only solution was to get rid of the existing uh, military leadership. And this was achieved through a device known as the self-denying ordinance. This is the way in which Cromwell, if you like, cut the Gordian knot, to use that expression. Uh, The the self-denying ordinance was uh, a bill that was put before, uh, before Parliament which stipulated that no member of parliament, either the House of Lords or the House of Commons, could uh, hold any uh, leading post, any commanding post in the army or the navy. Now, this was clearly aimed at uh, Essex and uh, Manchester. It was clearly aimed at the Lords, and the Lords therefore predictably put up a ferocious resistance. But in the end, uh, they couldn't uh, couldn't win the day. They couldn't succeed. The situation was too obvious. And finally, uh, on the 3rd of April, 1645, the ordinance was approved by both Houses of Parliament. Now, this represents a decisive change in the whole situation. It was, in effect, uh, a coup d'etat, if you like, by, by a bloodless coup, in which he succeeded overnight in getting rid of uh, Essex and Manchester. They were, they were removed from the, from the picture. Uh, Thomas Fair, Sir Thomas Fairfax was placed in overall command. But in reality, the, the real moving force behind the new army, which was now being raised, was uh, Oliver Cromwell. And here we, we enter the reign of the new model army. Now, this is a, an important development. This was a, an entirely new army, which was established. New uh, volunteers were raised. 
For the first time, the British Army was made, made up of full-time professional soldiers rather than part-time volunteers uh, tied to the local garrison. Yes, but this was, uh, that's not the end of the story. Too often military historians emphasize the technical side, of the discipline, of course, there was discipline, we'll deal with that in, in a moment. Uh, that's, uh, that's all true. But the main and fundamental difference between this army and all other armies that have ever existed in history, this is something entirely new on the face of the, of the earth, was first of all its social composition. Cromwell recruited his soldiers from from all social classes, but especially from the lower classes, from the people we refer to as the men with no shirts. Or to be more accurate, it was not the lower, the lowest of the low, the poorest elements. It wasn't that. It was mainly the artisans, the, the tinkers, the tailors, the cobblers, the carpenters, people of that description in the main. Cromwell actually said he warned uh, uh, when he was raising his troops and he spent a, he spent a personal fortune out of his own pocket in paying for this. Be careful, he wrote, what captains of horse you choose. Of horse, by the way, he was very keen on developing the cavalry for reasons which we've discussed. Be careful what captains of horse you choose, what men be mounted. A few honest men are better than numbers. Quality, not quantity. If you choose godly, honest men to be captains of horse, honest men will follow them. And that applied to the, the officers. Some of the officers were from lower classes. Uh, one called Iwa had been a serving man, a servant. Oakley had been a drainman. Uh, and the outstanding level, one of the, one of the, I think one of the most outstanding, if not the most outstanding revolutionary leaders, not sufficiently well known, I think, in comparison to Lilburn, but I think uh, better than Lilburn, in a way, was Thomas Rainsborough, whose father had been a, 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 a captain, actually a famous captain, was, he was a national hero as a result of his uh, exploits in the wars with Spain, I think. Uh, people like that. And these were, th these really were the, the cream of, of military uh, officers. Like, like, as in the Russian Red Army, I would say. Or the French Revolutionary Army, if it comes to that. People like Tukhachevsky in the, in the Red Army. These were, these were uh, top-notch revolutionary officers. And therefore, the majority of, of these troops, of course, being drawn from the lower classes, they were inspired by, they were, they were overwhelmingly, certainly all Protestants, overwhelmingly Protestant uh, Protestants, and many of them were, were what you might call the religious extremists, religious radical, uh, religious radicals. That especially applied to the cavalry, which was overwhelmingly radical and Puritan in its, in its, in its composition. And this, of course, caused, <laughs> caused a lot of uh, controversy. Uh, people attacked uh, the, the new, uh, from, from the very beginning, they attacked Cromwell's army, saying that it was made up of all kinds of low-class people, low people, and so on and so forth. Cromwell rejected these criticisms out of hand. Bear in mind that Cromwell himself was not a poor man. He was from a, quite a wealthy uh, uh, farming uh, background. He rejected it out of hand. I, I quote, it, he said to his, to his critics, it provokes your spirit to see such plain men made captains of horse. It had been well that men of honor and birth had entered into, into their employments, but why do they not appear? But seeing it is necessary 
that work must go on, better plain men than none. And best to have men patient of once, faithful and conscientious in their employment, and which I hope they will approve themselves. Uh, Denzel Hollis, uh, who, as you remember, had been in the past uh, a leading uh, parliamentary uh, figure in the parliamentary opposition, now passes with arms and baggage over to the camp of, uh, of conservative reaction, of Presbyterian counter-revolution. He uh, made a sneering comment about, uh, about the, new, the new model and its officers. All of them, he sneered, all of them, from the general, that's Cromwell, to the meanest sentinel, uh, are not able to make a thousand a year. Just imagine people like that, not able to, make, to, to, to earn a thousand pounds a year. Most of the colonels, he said, are tradesmen. Imagine that, tradesmen, brewers, tailors, goldsmiths, shoemakers and the like. This is uh, the insults, uh, the class insults, the class nobody from uh, Denzel Hollis. To which Cromwell furiously, fam famously replied, famously replied, I'd rather have a plain russet-coated captain that knows what he fights for and loves what he knows than what you call a gentleman and is nothing else. I honor a gentleman that is so indeed. And this is the language of class war, by the way. This is a class question. And here already one sees the, the, the glimpse of an approaching social revolution. An interesting little anecdote that when the Presbyterian minister, Richard Baxter, he wrote quite a lot about this period. When Richard Baxter visited Cromwell's army after Marston Moor, he was horrified with what he saw, absolutely horrified. He complained bitterly about the, the, the bad behavior of the soldiers and their, uh, their loose habits and their ribald language and so on. By this, by the way, he didn't mean that they were swearing and cursing because that wasn't allowed. That was strictly like drunkenness was strictly prohibited in the ranks of this disciplined uh, revolutionary army. What he meant by the, <laughs> their bad language is the fact that they were, they were constantly debating, these religious radicals in the army were constantly debating religious matters and they were uh, speaking uh, in quite familiar terms about Jesus Christ and, uh, and the Holy Spirit and the Bible and so on. Something which, of course, uh, ordinary people think is tailors and the cobblers shouldn't be discussing these questions at all. That's something that only only educated people, uh, proper people like uh, Baxter himself, were supposed to do. And of course, when I said earlier, perhaps I think some some eyebrows might have been raised when I said that the uh, Cromwell's new model army was a mixture, was like a mixture. I think it's a fair comment. It was like a combination of the red, the Russian Red Army, the Soviets, and the Bolshevik Party. Oh yes. I meant it. And they were constant, it was a democratic army. There were constant debates taking place in the rank of fire all the time. And of course, this spectacle of a revolutionary army, that's what it was then, clearly. A very effective revolutionary army, furthermore, it uh, put the fear of God into the wealthy property owners who made up the bulk of the House of Commons, and not to speak of the House of Lords, and of course, their Scottish Presbyterian uh, allies. And these men were anxious to put an end to what they thought was a dangerous revolution in church and state that was represented by the new model. They were particularly suspicious of, of, of Cromwell and his army. 
full, as, as they would see it correctly, full of religious radicals, levelism, revolutionaries, quite right, so it was. And you see, what was it that they were so frightened of? Well, think about it. Let's go back to what I said, a combination of the Soviets, the Bolshevik Party, and the, and, the, and the Russian Red Army. Yes, yes, precisely. What terrified them is that here was a force, an organized, disciplined, centralized force that gave an organized and, and conscious and disciplined expression to the somewhat incoherent revolutionary strivings of the masses. Oh, yes. And think about it. Just think. Use, use your imagination for a moment. In those days, there were no such thing. There was no such thing as a political party. Either left, right, or centre did not exist. Unknown, never been seen in history. Here was an organisation that provided the, the necessary vehicle, organised vehicle for the revolution to succeed. And this was a terrifying prospect, particularly when this vehicle was armed to the teeth with very courageous uh, fighters. Now, the, 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 therefore, what I'm saying is that the new model army, therefore, played an essential role in organizing, mobilizing, motivating, and centralizing the revolutionary masses, no doubt about it. And therefore, this is where, where it's, the English Revolution is somewhat different. And I think that's what puzzles people, you know. Uh, it, it, English Revolution is somewhat difficult with the French Revolution, or the, the, certainly the Russian Revolution. It's the central role of the army. The army is the centralizing force, the organized force of the English Revolution, and will remain so from start to finish. And by the way, this uh, religious extremism of the, uh, of, the, of the army made them into formidable fighters that were prepared to fight and die. They weren't afraid, they weren't afraid of dying. That was their decisive advantage over the enemy. Courageous, disciplined uh, men, men of iron, Prince Rupert once, I think he meant it as an insult. He described them as the iron sides because they, I think they wore some body armor, you know. And uh, this, uh, this uh, epithet stuck. And by the way, it's a very appropriate uh, epithet, which was later born as a badge of honor. The iron sides, oh yes. And though they looked upon these weavers and cobblers and carpenters in arms, they looked upon them first of all with a kind of snooty uh, attitude of superiority, you know. They soon found out to, to respect, they soon learned to respect Oliver, Oliver Cromwell's Ironside, which proved their virtue. They, already, they had proved it already in the Battle of, of, of Marston Moor. But you see, this very military efficiency precisely is what put the fear of God into the Presbyterian moderates in Parliament. They, had to, they, they needed Cromwell's army, they needed to fight against the king. Yes, but uh, as soon as possible, as we shall see, they intended to, uh, to, to stab it in the back, to get rid of it as soon as possible. And therefore, that's the main reason for it. You see the, you see the, the thread, the red thread that runs through all of, everything that I've said. This fear of the masses, fear of revolution on the part of the property class. That's the point. And that is the reason why the parliament precisely at this moment decides to press for, for more negotiations with the king. Peace negotiations and so on which commenced at Uxbridge and dragged on and on through the winter without leading to any conclusion because the king wasn't budging from his demands. Finally, predictably, the negotiations were abruptly, broke, abruptly broken off by the king in the spring of 1645. And Charles opened a new military campaign 
by a march uh, to the north, beginning with a fresh offensive in the Midlands. And here's where our attention must be centered. And here's where the most decisive battle of, this, of the first civil war, because there, there were two civil wars, actually, as we shall see. But the most decisive battle of the first civil war took place here. On the 30th of May, parliamentary forces uh, was laying siege to the king's capital in Oxford. And in an attempt to divert attention from the uh, siege, to, to undermine the, 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 the siege, if you like, uh, Prince uh, Rupert's army staged a diversionary attack on the town of Leicester, the city of Leicester, which was a strong, a, a, a Puritan stronghold, a parliamentary stronghold. And breaching its ward, walls and overcoming the, the, there was determined resistance from the defenders of Leicester, they entered the town and they took their revenge with sword and fire, inflicting the most terrible atrocities against the inhabitants. The result was a terrible slaughter of civilians. The bodies of uh, women and children were found amongst the dead. It was an appalling atrocity, typical of the wonderful, uh, glorious cavalier forces. But at this point, you see the fall of Leicester again. It, it was a victory for the royalists, and uh, everything seemed to be going okay for the king. Seemed to be, seemed to be. They'd stormed, uh, they had stormed Leicester. The blockade of, of, of Chester had been lifted, and uh, the eastern counties now was being threatened. Cromwell's uh, heartland was being threatened. To to make things even worse, from bad to worse, the royalist forces in Scotland had won a victory of signal victory over the army of Covenanters at Oberdon um, and Alford. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. It's a, it's a little bit, uh, it's close to Aberdeen anyway. Yeah. Everything seemed to be going fine for Charles, and yet things were about to undergo a fundamental change, a dramatic change. At the Battle of Naseby, some days after the, uh, after the massacre at Leicester, the new model army gathered its troops and set out to attack the king's army in a small village in the center of England, close to Daventry. The name of that village was Naseby, hardly a dot on the map, incidentally. And the Battle of Naseby, the most decisive battle of the war, took place in June 1645. I think Prince Rupert, typical of the man, was emboldened by the victory of Leicester. He was puffed up with his uh, usual... Uh, insuperable arrogance, uh, and uh, urged, uh, urged the royalists to, to join battle with, with, the, with the new model army, under Fairfax it was actually. Swayed by its arguments, the uh, royalist forces agreed to advance. And as usual uh, at Naseby, Rupert got up to his usual, trick, his usual tricks. As usual, Rupert staged a, a, a dashing cavalry charge. He broke the enemy's lines, as he usually succeeded in doing that. And also, as usual, his men threw himself into the pursuit of the defeated enemy, uh, as I say, as if it were a fox hunt. A bit of fun, you know. Yes, but this was no fox hunt. Uh, this was no fox hunt. The enemy forces facing uh, Rupert were not the same men that fought at Edge Hill, but they were Cromwell's Ironsides. The Ironsides threw themselves against the royalist left flank, where, but in a single charge, they smashed through the northern horse under the, the Earl of Langsdale. And having succeeded in this attack, Cromwell did not repeat the, the fatal mistake of, uh, of Prince Rupert. 
He pursued the fleeing enemy for about a quarter of a mile, and then he broke off the chase, let them go. And sending a few troops to prevent them from rallying and returning to the battle, he then wheeled round. These cavalrymen were very disciplined and very able to maneuver at a short notice. He wheeled them round and attacked the flank of the royalist infantry, causing panic to break out in the king's reserve, which fled the field, causing even more panic in the royalist ranks. Rupert, as, as, as was his habit, he returned uh, late with his forces, exhausted already by their pursuit. Uh, yes, too late. Too late. In vain, a desperate Charles called out to his cavalry in a note of despair, one charge more and we recover the day. But there was to be no more charges. The Battle of Naseby was over. It is true that the losses sustained by the parliamentary army were greater than those of the royalists. A, a thousand men were, were, were lost, as against less than 800 royalists. Yes, but 5,000 of the king's men surrendered, including 500 key officers. The king had lost all his artillery and ammunition, and his infantry, his infantry was scattered to the four winds. The Battle of Newbury had torn the guts out of Charles's army, and his cause was in ruins. Charles was now in an impossible position and uh, reluctant to take the step of handing himself over to Parliament. He was afraid of uh, being subjected to the insults and the ridicule of the parliamentary troops. He took a decision which was quite uh, surprising at the time. He decided to hand himself over to the Scots, to the Scottish army. Now, the Scots, he'd been informed by his agents, stood for moderation. They tried to put the brakes on the radicals and the revolutionary elements in, the, in Parliament and so on. And therefore, being a very devious and uh, manipulative, Machiavellian type as he was, he began to consider, the, the idea began to form in his brain of the intriguing prospect of playing off one faction against another in the process of regaining power for himself. Yes, he would throw in his lot with the Scots as the lesser evil, but in reality, of course, he didn't have much of an alternative. So in May, he turned up in the camp of the Scots. Now you can just imagine, just use your, use your imagination, just imagine the surprise of the Scottish generals and commissioners when the King King Charles suddenly appears in their midst. Of course, they must have been absolutely astonished. And although they paid him uh, all the respect due to his royal dignity, they nevertheless took care to place him under guard, allegedly for his own protection, but in reality to stop him from escaping. Because this royal guest, they treated him, <laughs> supposedly treated him as such, was in fact a valuable trading commodity. Now Charles continued his, uh, his intrigue, he never stopped intriguing this man, it's astonishing, his, his capacity to intrigue. He continued to try to play off the Scots against the English and the army against the Parliament and so on and so forth. But of course in the end the, the, the plans came to nothing, mainly on the religious question. Also because he refused, the Scots were adamant on this, that he must, they must take action against uh, his main supporters because of the crimes that they committed during the Civil War. He refused adamantly to do this. 
So in the end, uh, his plans came to nothing, and uh, the Scots finally decided that they should hand him over to the English Parliament. Of course, they weren't going to do this for nothing. <laughs> oh, no. They uh, argued and they squabbled like uh, people arguing over over the price of a horse in the middle of a gypsies arguing over the price of a horse of a horse in the middle of the, the town square, the middle of the market. And finally, they convinced the English market, the English Parliament, to hand over the sum of four hundred thousand pounds. That's an immense sum of money in those days. However, when Charles uh, uh, heard the figure. He joked that, that they'd sold their king on the cheap, uh, but sold he was, sold he was like a, like a sack of potatoes. Yes, but despite the collapse, in, this is quite astonishing, despite the collapse in his fortune, he still, Charles continued to, to uh, in intrigue and maneuver in an attempt to play off the army against the parliament. And in point of fact, he achieved some success in this. His real intentions, his real intentions, he didn't intend to support either the army or the parliament. He actually confessed, confessed he stated his, his interests as follows. I am not without hope. It's astonishing that a man without an army, without resources, without money, should be without hope. But he, he, he stated that. I am not without hope that I shall be able to draw either the, the Presbyterians or the independents Cromwell was an independent, to side with me for extirpating one another so that I shall be really king again. So he was going to put them at each other's throats until they destroyed each other, then he'd come back to power. That was his, that was his plan. Now, here's an, a very interesting and important point. The defeat of the king opens the door to the second phase which turned out to be an intermediate, an intermediate phase between two civil wars, because there were two civil wars, as we shall see. But at this point, I referred earlier to dual power. Earlier on, the dual power expresses itself as the dual power between Parliament in London and the King in Oxford. That's clear. Now this changes to power. Charles has been defe defeated. He's off the, uh, off the chessboard, if you like. And therefore, dual power still exists. There's a new dual power. That's very important. You should grasp this. A new dual power now exists. A shift. A shift. Now the, 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 the two centers are the parliament and Cromwell's new model army, the new model army. And here you can find a very precise analogy with the Russian Revolution. In the February Revolution, you'll remember the mass of workers and peasants and soldiers overthrew the Tsar through their own forces. But formal power remained with the bourgeois provisional government, which was striving to do a deal with the monarchy. Bear that in mind. The Soviets, which were an alternative power representing the workers and peasants, were prevented by their leaders from going any further. And out of this contradiction arose the, what Lenin called the abortion of dual power. Now, we, here we find a precise analogy. The role of the Soviets in the English Revolution, I repeat once more, was fulfilled by the new model army. The rank and file soldiers were extremely radical. They wanted to push the revolution further. But the officers of the army, including Cromwell, had one foot in parliament and the other in the army. And they tried to steer a middle course, like the Soviet leaders tried to steer a middle course, and held the army back. In this way, the initiative passed from revolution to counter-revolution in the form of a Presbyterian coup, 
staged by the moderates in parliament, which again led to a further radicalization of the revolution within the ranks of the new model army, about which we will speak next time. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.